Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. We're taking you to Pika Town. Won't you take me to Pika Town? <laughs> Pikas will be your new favorite animal if they're not already. They're like chipmunks, but somehow cuter. They're helping scientists study climate change. We'll meet one pika scientist who turned a natural disaster into an important discovery. So you know Pikachu from Pokemon? Yeah, but isn't this podcast about science for kids, not cartoons for kids? Hold on. It's relevant because pikas, the animal we're talking about today, are the inspiration for Pikachu. Oh, do they go pika pika and shoot lightning bolts? <laughs> no, but they do sound like this. Pikas live in mountainous areas in parts of Asia, Eastern Europe, and Western North America. In Salem, Oregon, 8th graders at the Jane Goodall Environmental Middle School study pikas in their conservation biology class. Vanessa, Kellen, and Caroline gave us a few quick pika facts. Pikas live on rocky slopes called taluses. Pikas like to walk and hop in between the big rocks. What I love about pikas is they're kind of small and cute, and they also have very weird tolerances to temperature, where they don't like really hot temperature or really cold temperature. With climate change, scientists are worried about the snowpack that pikas use in the winter. So I'm picking up a pretty strong message here. Pikas live in the mountains. They're cute, cute as little buttons, but they're sensitive to climate change. Exactly. That's why the class has been helping a scientist named Pika Joe collect data to study pikas in their area. What a crazy coincidence with her name that she studies pikas. <laughs> well, her real name is Johanna Varner. She got the nickname after she started studying pikas. So we're going to learn about her research. But first, let's find out how one becomes pika anyone. <laughs> pika Jim or pika Tom. You could be pika Marshall. Well, I actually did not plan to become a pika ecologist. I actually studied for five years uh, as an engineer. After Johanna graduated from university, she knew she didn't really want to become an engineer. So she worked at a bakery and then traveled across the world, trying to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. Then one day, she picked up a newspaper and found her answer. And I read this newspaper article about pikas. And in the newspaper article, they had interviewed a woman who had studied them for her PhD. This woman was a pika scientist, and Johanna suddenly knew that's what she wanted to be, too. I thought, wait a minute, there are these people called ecologists, and they go camping and hiking, and they watch the pikas, and I love pikas. Johanna immediately wrote an email to the pika scientist. It basically went like this. Dear Dr. Deering, my name's Joe, and I really like pikas, and I would like to become a pika biologist, and I'm wondering what I should do. The pika scientist wrote back and said Johanna could come work with her. After two years of training, Johanna decided to go to school to get a PhD, which meant that she would be a pika scientist. Okay, so who doesn't want to spend time with adorable animals for the rest of their lives? But what does that mean? What do you even do? Cuddle? <laughs> Do you test their cuddling features? <laughs> Potentially. 
Well, like any kind of science, you ask questions, create hypotheses, and set up experiments. Johanna's favorite part is getting out into the mountains of the Pacific Northwest in North America to observe pikas. That's what she calls fieldwork. When we're doing fieldwork, we typically have really early mornings. That's because pikas are most active between 6 and 9 in the morning. Armed with coffee and breakfast bars, Johanna and her crew get up to visit them. Sometimes we have to hike in pretty far, sometimes not so far, to get to a site and sort of set up shop. I bring a little cushion that I can sit on on the rocks. How does she know where to find pikas? Well, pikas have what we call a tell. Like when you know when they have a good poker hand? Yeah. Each pika has its own little territory of a wide circle on a rock slide. They have a hidden stockpile of plants to get them through the winter. But they all have the same hiding place, and Johanna knows where to find it. Typically, they're under the biggest rock in the rock slide. So typically, you'll go to the biggest rock in the rock slide, and you look under it. And if you find plants, then you know that there's a pika that's active there. So pikas are actually kind of bad at hiding their stuff. But why is it important to study pikas? In addition to being extremely cute, pikas are also really valuable indicators of the health of alpine ecosystems. That means pikas can tell us about the other plants and animals that live in their mountain habitat and how they all work and live together. You mean like they'll send little dispatches from the mountains? May 3rd, saw some bugs, ate some tasty plants. Unfortunately, no. It's about how pikas behave in response to change. So they're sensitive sometimes to changes in temperature or changes in snowpack. And for those reasons, we can, we can study pikas to learn more about how ecosystems are changing. Well, that's exactly what the students said. Scientists are worried about how changing ecosystems, meaning climate change, impact pikas. Climate change is affecting a lot of animal species, not just polar bears. The temperatures in the mountains are getting warmer, and rain and snow isn't as predictable as it used to be. Scientists noticed that the number of pikas in certain areas were shrinking, or even disappearing. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah, it is. But there's also something strange about how it's happening. Pikas are really interesting because it's not really happening the same all over their range. What does that mean? Well, in some places, pikas are doing just fine. So you mean if pikas who live on one mountain are doing fine, the ecosystem there is probably okay. But if they've disappeared off another mountain, it means the whole mountain is in trouble? Yeah. And that's what it means for pikas to be an indicator species. And why pikas are more than just another adorable furry face. Right. So when Johanna went to set up her first study as a pika scientist, she chose one site where pikas seem to be doing all right— Mount Hood, a giant volcanic mountain in Oregon. So she hiked out there, found the pika stockpiles, sat down on a cushion. Right, the whole drill. It was a beautiful summer, and Johanna planned to go back the next year and see how the pikas did over the winter. But then something unexpected happened. What I discovered is that in September of 2011, shortly after I had left, there was a big wildfire that swept across the whole north face of Mount Hood, and it burned up... Um, most but not all of the sites where I had placed temperature sensors and had been observing the behavior of pikas. Oh no! The places where she'd spent her mornings hanging out with pikas were now charred and burned. 
Johanna was devastated. First thing that I did was kind of curl up into a ball, cry, you know, say sad things like, my PhD just went up in flames. So was everything ruined? Did she just have to start over? Well, after she uncurled herself from the ball position, she started to see things differently. I came to realize that this was actually a real opportunity to study how fires affect pikas. Um, We're seeing changes across the American West. Fires are becoming more frequent and more intense. And those changes are predicted to occur exactly in the places where we find pikas. Wow. So fires are another big part of climate change. And she just changed her study to look at that. She hadn't planned on it, but because she set up her study before the fire, she had a really unusual opportunity. What's really cool about that is that understanding kind of the fundamental requirements for a species' habitat to be, you know, able to support that species is something that's really difficult to do in ecology. So the fire could help her figure out what pikas need in order to live somewhere? Exactly. And it's usually so hard to do because ecosystems are so complex. It's hard to know exactly how much of what they need to survive. But the pikas were starting from scratch and Johanna could watch. After the fire, she went back to the sites. There was very little to eat. Um, The rock slide itself was completely charred. You know, there was pretty much one elderberry bush for 30 feet from the rocks. And, you know, we found pikas living there. What? The pikas survived the fire? Yes. It was an incredible survival story. (laughs) These were the same pikas as before? How did they make it through a fire? The clue was in something else that survived the fire. Johanna's temperature sensors. Well, first I was very surprised that my data loggers had not been destroyed or melted. She picked them up and plugged them into her computer. They had measured the temperature nonstop throughout the fire. Um, but when I downloaded the data from those sensors, what I found was that the the temperatures in the rock slides down in the, the crevices where the pikas actually spend a lot of time, it never got above about 70 degrees. That's unbelievable. It's like a nice summer day temperature. I know. The rock slide served as a really great temperature buffer. The pika's own habitat had saved them. So when Johanna went back to observe them the next two summers, she discovered how they recovered from the fire. They just needed one thing, plants. It didn't seem to matter what plants were there. The pikas needed a certain number of plants per square foot, basically, in order to come back. And once there were that many plants per square foot, that's when we saw the pikas come back. So when a pika is out house hunting, it's like looking around like, oh, definitely going to need to repair that rock over there and uh, maybe move this so that we, we need a bigger rock moved in so that we can have something to hide under. Oh, but, you know... We're right next to the plants. I think we'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) They're very willing to deal with a (laughs) fixer-upper. It's a surprising and sort of heartening that that at least in some times and some capacities, these animals have the ability to bounce back. It's also good news that the kind of plants doesn't matter because climate change might affect the type of vegetation that can survive in their habitat. It's support that vegetation changes as a result of climate change are not likely to be affecting pikas. If they are negatively affected by climate change, it's probably more likely that it's through changes in temperature or precipitation patterns.
If pikas are affected, it's because of temperature and precipitation, how much rain and snow is in their environment. And it's helpful for scientists like Johanna to know what to focus on. Well, you know, I have a lot of hope for pikas here. Me too. Another cool thing is you don't have to be a pika scientist to help out with the pika science. If you live in areas where pikas live, or nearby, you don't have to live on top of the rock slide, you can collect data just by taking pictures. You can also submit observations of pikas, uh, including pictures and sound files, to a platform called iNaturalist. And there's an app that you can download, and there's actually a project on iNaturalist called the American Pika Atlas. That's so neat. So not only can you get total Instagram-worthy photos of furry adorableness, you can contribute to science. Everyone wins. Do you love spotting animals in your area? Take Johanna's suggestion and check out iNaturalist.org. It's really cool because you can keep track of your own nature observations and contribute to science about plants and animals, not just pikas. There's projects all over the world about everything from bees in North America to reptiles in Italy to flowers in Germany. Ask an adult to help you sign up, find a project, and become a naturalist. Let us know what you see by emailing us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to Johanna Varner, Assistant Professor of Biology at Colorado Mesa University, as well as Vanessa Carter, Kellen Whitley, and Caroline Minning, 8th grade students at Jane Goodall Environmental Middle School in Salem, Oregon. Special thanks to their teacher, Mike Weddle, for helping record and coordinate with us. If you'd like to learn more about pikas, check out our blog post at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Thanks to all our new patrons this week. Ryan Nakaya of The Kids Should See This. Ryan says she and her kid are fans of ours, and we're fans of theirs. Amalia and Kono from Warwick, Rhode Island, who love to listen to Tumble on the way to school in the morning. We're working on a lot of cool new stuff right now, and our patrons on Patreon are always the first to hear about it. We also have a teacher store full of episode transcripts, curriculum packages, and Marshall's awesome science songs. If you pledge $5, you get free access to all that stuff. Besides the rewards, if you know that Tumble has contributed something meaningful to your life and your family's life, please consider pledging. It is a huge part of how we support ourselves making this show. Go to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast today or click the donate button on our website. Sarah Lentz is our editor and she also did the interview for this episode. I'm Lindsay Patterson and I wrote and produced this episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla and I wrote all of the music you hear. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for more stories of science discovery.